Welcome back to Night Cheese. This is Steven. And I'm Tim. And I'm Jared. And uh, we appreciate you joining us. I hope you enjoyed our last episode on Collateral. I hope you guys got a chance to watch that at some point. If not, I still would like to go back and highly recommend that. But we are now venturing into Black History Month. And so we will be spending the next few weeks with you uh, covering some, I don't know if you would call them non-traditional Black History films, uh, where we want to you know, we at Nietzsche's, we, we want to participate in that and um, use our discussion to uh, to be a part of what's going on. And uh, we, you know, we dipped our toe in this last summer uh, with everything that was going on in the world with protests and stuff to try to explore um, some of those issues that were that were at the forefront then. So now um, I, I don't know about you guys, but uh, at least in my household and stuff and uh, some of the ways I'm, I'm trying to be um, a more. Uh, culturally competent father, I guess. Um, and, and what I'm, uh, and what we kind of see like in our education systems and stuff is that, you know, you have black history month in schools and, and, uh, and, and there are, I think some, some common feedback about that now that's like, okay, here's Martin Luther King, here's Rosa Parks. And now let's move on to the next thing, which stories that need to be told, but there are so many stories that aren't being told as well. And so we'd like to use the next few weeks to um, explore some, some figures, some, some historical figures. Uh, we're not going to be doing, you know, four or five biopics or anything like that. Um, but uh, these, these films that we're going to talk about uh, have to do with historical black figures and, and central central uh, center around um themes relevant to black community throughout history. So uh, that is what we're doing. And some of that is is obviously domestic. And uh, we, we we do have uh, some, some international flavor to that later on in the month as well. So if you follow our uh, Instagram account uh, and our Facebook feed, um, we've already announced the films that we're going to be covering. Um, so check those out if you want a uh, some insight into what's to come. But tonight uh, we are starting off with our first entry, uh, the... 20 it's it's brand new uh, it came out it, it debuted i think at the venice film festival or some somewhere along those lines late last year but uh for the masses it has just debuted this year in 2021 it's one night in miami um and that film is available right now on amazon prime um and i think you know if, if you're brave and your theaters are open near you, you might actually be able to catch it in some select theaters as well. But uh, currently it is available um, uh, for free if you are an Amazon Prime member. Uh, One Night in Miami was directed by Regina King. Uh, it was adapted by a state, uh, it's an adaptation of a stage play written by Kent Powers, who also has writing credit on the movie as well, for obvious reasons. So, um, Right, right off the bat, uh, I'll, I'll just give a little bit of groundwork, and then we can we can dive in. So um, it's it's a pretty small cast, uh, with it being an ad- adapted stage play. It's a it's a fictitious account of, as the title says, one night in Miami, Florida, um, 
where uh, Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, who those of you who don't follow sports uh, would know better by the name Muhammad Ali, uh, Jim Brown, NFL running back and singer Sam Cooke uh, meet in a hotel room and, and honestly just have some really deep conversations. Um, Rotten Tomatoes actually gives the critics gave this currently have this film listed at 98%. Um, it, the user rating is 82%. So there's a bit of a discrepancy there, but it's still overwhelmingly positive. Uh, IMDb has it listed as a 7.3 in Metacritic with an 83 score. So um, really high praise everywhere. Um, Malcolm X is portrayed by Kingsley Ben-Adir. Um, Cassius Clay is portrayed by Eli Gorey. Uh, Jim Brown is played by Aldous Hodge. And uh, from Hamilton fame, Leslie Odom Jr. plays singer Sam Cooke. So uh, one night in Miami. Um, let, let's talk, guys. Um, all the all the formal formalities are out of the way. Um, uh, initial initial impressions, Tim. What, what do you got? You know, I did not realize uh, until probably right right before we started the film that Regina King directed it, and I got really excited because I know as if you've listened to this podcast, she's kind of almost like a. She comes up a lot. She's a favorite of ours for sure. That's that's on me. <laughs> hey, no, I'm right there with you. I, I, I'm totally there with you. And um, I, w- I will say, uh, you know, for um, a movie that, you know, like you said, it's basically four men having a conversation at a hotel, like in a hotel room. Uh, for that kind of a description, she is really, a, you know, behind the camera, able to do such a, a stunning job at making that interesting and really keeping things going, keeping things flowing. Um, I was, I was absolutely, I, I just, I, I love this film. Um, I think it, it stands on its own just as a, as a great like drama, just in its, you know, just on its own, but especially what it's kind of saying in our, our moment right now, culturally, I think is pretty significant as well. So I think it accomplishes both and does both really well. It'd be a great movie regardless, but I feel like it's got a lot of great things to say uh, uh, right now. So yeah, I loved it. First thoughts, Jared. Yeah, same. I thought it was really good. It's, it's, you know, dramas are not really uh, like a quiet, more of a quiet piece of a drama like this honestly is not my thing. It's not (laughs) something that I would ever, um, probably make myself sit down to, to watch in, in TV or, or movie form. Um, you know, you, you know, Steve and I watched this is us and like, that's a huge departure for me in, in terms of my, <laughs> my TV viewing, you know, I, and I got into that and I'm like, Oh, this is great. So, um, it, it's one of those things where I tend to gravitate, gravitate towards, you know, sci-fi or mystery or, or whatever. Um, so this is definitely a departure for me, but yeah, I, I really did like it. Um, and I think kind of like Tim said, Regina King did a lot with, what's you know a quiet movie in some ways i mean uh, i say quiet but there's a lot of um, conflict and and drama within the conversations there uh but for a, a movie set mostly in a in a hotel room uh there's a lot of there's a lot of meat there this might um this might have been one of the widest takes I could have had, um, but I was writing down <laughs> thoughts and I have written down, what if the breakfast club had steaks? 
um, which was my, my first thought about this movie. Um, I go back to, you know, I mean, Jared, you know, it's, it's transparent here about, you know, the kinds of content he usually consumes. And obviously there is a, there is a flair and an element to the things that I most comfortably uh, consume as well. And um, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, initially start with this movie without thinking of an old episode of community where the character uh, Abed refers to being in a bottle episode, um, which is, you know, the idea that, you know, it's that there's not a lot of visual action tank taking place. Everyone's kind of cooped up in one place. And I think his, uh, you know, his character in that episode of community says, you know, it's like, it's wall to wall facial expressions and emotions. And, you know, I, he's like, I might as well be standing in the corner. Cause like, he's just like, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with him. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't say that to criticize the movie. It's just kind of how I related to the idea with some stuff that some, some content that I was a little more familiar with. Um, what, what I think I, I really enjoy is the, uh, the moment in time this takes place. So it plays a little fast and loose with like the dates and times of some things in history, because some of these, some of these things that you see take place in the movie, you know, in, in, in real history took place like months apart or maybe even a year apart and stuff. But it's this moment where Cassius Clay uh, wins the heavyweight title from Sonny Liston. And this, it's basically his after party, which has been, um, coordinated by Malcolm X, which turns out to be just the four of them in the hotel room to much to the chagrin of all three of the rest of them. And initially, cause they're like, you know, we want to party with women. We want to drink, we want to whatever. And, and here comes the teetotaler <laughs> to start, you know, basically handing us pa- pamphlets about Islam yeah. or something. Um, and, and, uh, you know, it goes so much deeper and wider than that, but also like the point in time that this movie happens, I was looking, so it's supposed to have taken place in February of 1964, which is, um, almost six months before, uh, the civil rights act was, was, uh, passed. Um, so it's prior to that happening in America. Um, there is really a lot of, uh, national tension coming to a head. Like, you know, JFK has already been assassinated and, and, um, there is this real, I don't know. It's, it's something that I really liked about this film is every character, um, is shown, for their strengths. Um, they, they give every character an opportunity for you to, um, empathize with their individual struggles, not just, you know, collectively as, as black men in America, but, but the little nuances of what those things are as well. And I, the, the first moment to me anyways, I mean, you, I, I might be forgetting something even earlier on, but very early on the film before the four of them meet, uh, for the party, so to speak. Um, Jim Brown is back in his home state of Georgia on St. Simon's Island, and he's having a conversation with uh, Bo Bridges, which, by the way, just in the movie for a minute, but he did really well. And they're having this conversation, uh, you know, about his about his NFL career and like how um, for those of you, if you don't know much about Jim Brown, I mean, I don't know, Jared, you, you were a sports writer. You might even be able to flesh it out more than I can. But one of the uh, maybe the. Uh, epitome of someone like walking away from the sport in their prime at the top of their game. Like he was a, he was a record breaker, um, a dominant running back. And 
I mean, there's there's not I don't know if there's a ton of people you can compare him to now, given how how head and shoulders like above everybody else he was. Um, granted, he he played for Cleveland. So, I mean, I don't know how many I don't know how Cleveland was then compared to how they've been <laughs> now or in the past couple of decades. But um, if they were a contender, it was because of him. Um so yeah, I mean, am, am I am I painting the picture accurately enough there, Jared, on Tim Brown, from what you know at least? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think uh, I, I actually was thinking about that myself in watching the movie. Is I wasn't really sure, like, yeah, how how good were the Browns at the time? And I I don't remember, and I didn't go back and look since I just finished it up today. But um, yeah, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, and I'm just sitting there trying to think of like. There's not a, I mean, well, you know what? You are a Colts fan. So, you know, we saw Andrew Luck like walk away. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Ago. In, in terms of what you're talking about in terms of, um, yeah, him walking away. Yeah. It's, it's pretty rare. I mean, you've got, um, you've got him and, and then prior to Andrew Luck, the one that was maybe a little bit more known to our generation would have been Barry Sanders. Yeah. Um, who, you know, who was also a running back. So, yeah, I mean, I think prior to them, um, you know, Jim Brown would have been sort of the guy. Yeah. And also I think too, so, and we'll get to that in a minute about, you know, his reasons for stepping away and stuff, but, um, he has this scene with Bo Bridges on the front of Bo's like, you know, his plantation style house on the front porch. And it's, it's an interesting conversation at first, like where he's just like, man, you know, it seems really encouraging. Like he's mm-hmm. like, Oh, you know, you'll get them next year. Like they had just come short of, of getting to the Super Bowl and, or, or, or having some championship winning season. And, um, and Brown's just like, Hey, you know, and, and, and he's like, um, he's really encouraging Jim because Jim had set a rushing record in the league that had never, you know, that obviously was unprecedented. And he's, he's like, well, you know, I would have rather won a championship than set a record. He's like two years from now, nobody's going to remember who the champion was, but your leg, but your rushing record will, you know, people won't forget that. And for what it's worth, um, the rushing record that I don't know which record because Jim Brown broke multiple records <laughs> um, in the NFL. But I will say for what it's worth, like his rushing record, I think as a rookie, um, his record among rookies went unchallenged for 40 years. Um, wow. And I, I forget his his league rushing record went unchallenged for, I think, at least a decade anyways. But the one, especially as a rookie, was unchallenged for 40 years. And um so it's interesting to hear, you know, Bo Bridges is telling him, it's like, you know, you basically saying like, don't worry about, you know, the team championships, like you know, basically be proud of what you accomplished as an individual, you know? And you're like, wow, yeah, exactly. You know? And right. um, he gets up to go back inside because his, one of his daughters has said they need help moving some furniture around and Brown politely gets up and offers to help. And just in the same politeness and civility mm-hmm. it was like oh you know jim we, we don't let in words in the house mm-hmm. and like and that oh my gosh yeah. i was shocked at first because i just wasn't expecting that right from, from yeah. the t- temperament of the conversation but i immediately felt so so many people i've been around over the course yeah. of my life yes 
the, 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 that are the people who will say, well, I'm not a racist, you know, I cheer for football teams that have black players on them or something. <laughs> I don't know. Like, but just something crazy like that. Um, and you know, that I'm, I'm not a racist until it literally is on my, uh, my front doorstep, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, that was such a, I mean, I, I guess it would be weird to call it subtle since the line was pretty much in your face, but, um, but that was such a, um, nonchalant. I guess. Yeah. Is that what yeah. It yeah. was, it was so nonchalant. Oh, I want to say it was kind of subtle. Like it wasn't, he wasn't angry about it. And he was like, you understand, you know, mm-hmm. like whatever. And like Bo Bridges character walks away from that moment thinking that he didn't do anything wrong. Like, right. like yeah, right. he thought, like, you know, that in the mind of that character, he's walking away from that moment thinking we're still cool. Right. We're good. We're good. And it's just a reminder. It's just a visual reminder um, for the viewer and for, you know, Brown's character in that film. It's like it doesn't matter how much you do for some people that you won't be accepted uh, in that moment. And that is that is a burden that he I mean, they're all carrying that burden in some form or another. But that's the the visual of the burden that he's carrying walking into that meeting Um, was such a strong strong moment um yeah. do you guys have any other takes on that scene or any of the other like pre-meeting scenes or anything like that um I, I i thought they set it up so well because they went so far to the other side with um i guess it's the guy's daughter um when she or i don't know if it's the daughter or the maid maybe maybe you know who it was but anyway the, the younger woman who answers the door and is like getting lemonade for him and basically talking about just like how um, excited Bo Bridges character was about seeing him just this, you know, reverence for him. And she's like, Oh, you're an NFL player. And it it was just like, you know, setting it up like two fans, like two starstruck fans. Um, And then, you know, so to go through all that and then have that turn, um, you know, on that one line, um, was, yeah, like that was, it was, it was jarring in, because, I mean, because I mean, I knew what this movie was, was going to be roughly in a way. Yeah. Um, but if nothing else, you, you understand the time and, and the figures that you're talking about. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, in that moment, it had kind of like lulled me into like some false sense of security there, which is very true of, real, which is great in a way because it, you know, it's so true of real life situations. I mean, I can, I can go through, (laughs) I mean, I grew up in rural Northeast Georgia. I can go through (laughs) so many of those. I mean, not on, you know, my side where it was, you know, inflicted on me, but, you know, I can think of one, you know, that, that stands out where I had, uh, this is when I had gone to Georgia Southern, uh, for a year for grad school, or I was going to be going to Georgia Southern for a year for grad school. And I had just run into, um, one of my old teachers and her husband, um, like in a, in a parking lot. And so I was talking to her, I was talking to her and we, we were just having a very nice conversation. The husband had not said a word and then out of nowhere interrupts in the middle of conversation. Cause we're talking about the Statesboro area. And he's like, yeah, I guess there's a bunch of N words down there. And, and I, I'm just like on one hand floored. And on the other hand, just like, yeah, this is what I've been around my, my whole life. So it really made me think back to that 
conversation in particular, but that by no means is one, you know, isolated incident. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Tim. Well, no, I was going to say, I mean, you guys said it all basically, but yeah, just that. I, I think the, the film did a great job early on to kind of almost play out or introduce, you know, these, these concepts, these, you know, things that they'll be talking about in the hotel room to kind of introduce them, to kind of bring them up earlier on in the film and that yeah just you got I mean I was the same way I can't even remember I was just kind of just kind of enjoying the conversation that like that moment where he says that just that shock and that kind of reminder like oh okay yeah that was a that was a crazy moment but I I I appreciate what they did with the the beginning and how they they kind of introduced um kind of in I don't know in real life what kind of introduced these ideas that will be or not ideas, but just the struggles and the conflict they will be talking about later on. Well, and you know, you get, you get versions of that, um, all around, um, with, 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 uh, with the other characters and, you know, just the, the struggle that is the struggle that's rooted in race somewhere. Um, and you see that, you know, I'd say, Jim Brown and Sam Cooks are probably a more more in your face. Um, Sam Cooks, um, you know, sort of introduction scene was so hard to watch. To um, where he's playing at uh, the Copa at the, the Copa Cabana Club, yeah. and um, you know that his manager, or I guess it's the the club manager, uh, I wasn't exactly sure, but like you know, they bar his bands from being on stage with him because they're all black and and makes him play with this big band background which he's you know clearly you know you get the sense that that not only is sam you know wants to preserve the dignity his dignity and the, the dignity of his band but also he's a real like student and master of his craft too because his his argument wasn't just like you know, oh, so you won't let the black people on the stage. It was also those people don't know my arrangements. So you're going to mess up my music, <laughs> you know? Um, right. And so, you know, he had a multi-pronged conflict with, oh, yeah. with the people there. <laughs> um, you know, so he gets on stage and it, oh gosh, it's so heart-wrenchingly awkward and anger inducing like to see the crowd like there's crowd that starts get up and walking out as soon as they see him on stage um and then as he begins he gets a little nervous and like knocks his mic stand over and and i will say in the midst of it just to give you a a piece of history as to what life was like then there's a waitress walking around offering (laughs) cigarettes (laughs) to people and like cigarettes are like a big box of cigarettes. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh wow. Well that's, that's, that's jarring. Um, and you know, in a more lighthearted way. Um, but you know, obviously he is, he is dejected as well. And then, you know, Muhammad, I, I want to call him Muhammad Ali already, but it's yeah. important to recognize that, you know, that's, that's not who, that wasn't the name he had at this point in history, although it comes shortly after, um, is that, you know, Cassius Clay is being, you know, he's, he's already, you know, the, the, um, Mm, I cannot think of the adjectives, but this brash, you know, pompous, arrogant athlete, you know, smack talker. Um, <laughs> and, and that, that everyone remembers, you know, him being yeah. in his career and, and he, and he has the goods to back it up. Um, but he is constantly being hounded by his own management team 
for his friendship with Malcolm X, who Malcolm has been accused and, and, and you don't really see it. And, and I'm glad they didn't really spend this much time, but you know, they reference a lot of the public sentiments that Malcolm had made um, and the press and stuff about white people and stuff and being very antagonistic and stuff. And when, when it comes out of his mouth, he, he tries to defend it a little bit or backtrack on it. Or it was like, that's not exactly what I said, you know, all this other stuff, you know, when, when he gets associated with cash, all these, all these white people, you know, who, who have given Cash's money to, you know, for his training camps and all this other stuff, his investors kind of for lack of a better term, you know, are wanting to control that element about him. Of course, no better character than Cassius Clay to just speak his mind and be like, no, you know, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Uh, he's like, I'm going to be the champ and they're going to get paid so they can just shut up about it. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and then, and then you have Malcolm and I, and I will say I was, um, if I can be transparent, I think I was least in, going into the film, least interested about Malcolm as a character because I just never felt like in any, um, any medium that I've come across, his his life and teachings and thoughts on things have I found a whole lot of common thread. Okay, um, but I think I walked away from this one with more surprised engagement with his character for the kind of stuff he was he was um, dealing with. Not so much his his uh, um, Muslim beliefs, but but how that worked in his relationship to his religious establishment which was the nation of Islam. Like he was on the verge. He was both in one hand courting um, Cassius Clay to convert to Islam and join the nation of Islam while he was getting ready to depart from it. Um, and he had come, his, his uh, conflicts with the heads of the nation of Islam had come to a head. And um, I did some background reading, but apparently I don't, and I can't remember if this was actually brought up in the film, but historically he was removed and left the nation of Islam because he had spoken, spoken out about um, the infidelity of one of the heads of the, the, the nation uh, there of having children out of wedlock and cheating on his wife and all this other stuff. And um, they really do a lot to humanize Malcolm X in this movie, like as a devoted father and someone who does kind of see himself as on the outer circle, even in that circle of guys, like, you know, mm -hmm. because they all have this, they all have this talent that's right on the, on the front you know, that you can see, um, mm -hmm. you know, this great artist and Sam cook, these two once in a lifetime athletes and Cassius Clay and Jim Brown. And then you got Malcolm X and they make it Malcolm X to be like the, you know, oh gosh, this is going to sound like a joke and I don't, but, but you know, it's just coming from the world that I live in the context that I, of the shows I've watched as good. He's like, like the screech of the group, you know, like, like, um, you know, I mean, sure. He, he speaks up and, and, and he has, he's a good public speaker and everything, but you can, it's clear that he's got some insecurity with those other guys when things really boil down and the conflicts get really big. Um, and I'll say um, before I, I take a break from all this long talking, sorry, <laughs> is, um, you know, I was, I, I don't want to say moved to compassion, but apart, apart from the tenets of, you know, obviously I don't believe the same things that Malcolm X believed and we're in two different worlds there, but I understand how he felt um, trying to be true to what he believed while 
getting to a point of no return with the organization that he belonged to. Um, yeah, there, there, I see a lot of that going around with, with, with Christians in my circles, having a lot of problems with Christian organizations of things while not, I wouldn't say not struggling with their faith, but, but, um, but they are struggling to belong to, to a group of believers, you know, and, um, he was dealing with that and, and it's a very scary thing to walk away from the comfort and security of a, of a mobilized organization of belief and still try to possess that belief for yourself and, and do what you think is right. Um, and, uh, and that resonated with me. Um, yeah. and I, and I wasn't expecting that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I, I'll go, I'll jump in. I, I was intrigued. I'll, I'll say I, you know, grew up, you know, we're all white. I grew up. Um, and although I didn't learn a lot about Malcolm X growing up, um, he was always kind of contrasted with Martin Luther King as like an example of how to, how to protest, you know, how to, how to, um, how to, def- you know, fight for, you know, liberties, that sort of thing. You know, you have the nonviolent Malcolm X, the kind of, uh, Defang, declawed, you know, the, the passive, more passive way of protesting, the more, you know, acceptable way versus the, Malcolm the, X. The memeable Martin Luther King. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, um, so I think growing up, he was always kind of this, uh, you know, this, oh, this is not, you know, he's not how you want to do thing, you know, I'll, you know, not desiring unity. I mean, it was kind of like the antagonist and, um, that, you know, I think, you know, even though I didn't really know much about him, I didn't have, I mean, I didn't have this outright like dislike him. I just assumed he was kind of in that camp. Um, but in the last, you know, I don't know how many years kind of started, you know, one, as I'm sure all of us have been doing for a long time is kind of just going through all these conceptions, you know, preconceived ideas from our past and kind of untangling them and wrestling with them. And over that time, you know, like I read his autobiography and I think with you, Stephen, yeah, there's a lot of things I ultimately would like, I don't know if this is how I would, conduct my, you know, that's not, you know, some of his beliefs and ideas. I don't know if I would have conducted myself in the same way, but that's sort of what you said, like understanding some of the things he believes and why he believes it. So I was really intrigued with this. Cause I, I think I probably knew more about him than any of the other three. I knew, I knew about all of them, but, um, I was intrigued with him because he felt, and I, they bring this up in the film too. He f- feel more, he felt more of the outsider than the other three. They're, the other three are all either in entertainment or sports, and so I was really curious how the dynamics would go and what would be going on. So I was really intrigued with that, and I really did. I was wondering what, you know, how you know, obviously with the back and forth, you you they would kind. Of, I'm sure they would be discussing pros and cons and kind of. Um, kind of weighing all of their how how they're conducting themselves and how they're contributing to like the civil rights movement, and so I was really curious how it would be portrayed in this film, and I thought it was really fascinating how they were able to kind of you know you're able to see the the flaws, but then also see the pros as well, see the like conclusions that he arrived at. You it, it makes a lot of sense, and you understand okay that I could see why he would think those things. So I, I, that's, I'm sorry. I guess that's where I was getting at. So I was really intrigued. And I thought they all did a really great job of, you know, kind of exp- man, just, just in the back and forth, just showing kind of how they're all were trying in their own way. Uh, it, it was just a, I just, I just loved the, the back and forth and I'm really, yeah. So I was really intrigued at whether they were going to go with his character and his ideas, how they would um, approach it. So yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. I, I think that was, 
Um, I mean, to me that, uh, well, it is, it's the focal point of the film, um, you know, is this back and forth between the four of them and kind of discussing their responsibilities to society versus basically, you know, their own lives and, and taking care of themselves and sort of the different lenses that each one of them see the other through in terms of what, what they should be doing. Um, so, I mean, I think I, I was able to relate to a lot of that just in, you know, various different things like, on a personal level to a society level yeah. of, of, of different things going on and like what responsibility you have to speak up on certain things, what responsibility you have to like when you're like, I, you know what, I just need to, I need to take care of myself on this yeah. one. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and there is, you know, I, I related to a lot of that. I related to a lot of that struggle of like, what, what's the right thing to do here versus what's the sensible thing to do. And, you know, mm-hmm. is there a, is there a middle ground that you can find? Is there, should you swing back and forth between the two? So, um, I thought those were really good. I thought they, I thought they did them really well in terms of, when one character would speak about it, you'd be like, Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I see his point. That's what yeah. you mean. And then, and then you get the counterpoint and you'd be like, well, damn it. Okay. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I get his point too. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah no, I, I thought all of that was great. And yeah. I thought all of that was something that's applicable to you regardless of, you know, almost regardless of your circumstances mm. or, you know, personal background. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, I really, um, oh gosh, I, I, um, I, there's, yeah, there's so many conversations that take place that, that balance all those things out and stuff. And, um, what's interesting to know is that, you know, while these guys are sort of united in theory about the advancement of, of black people in America, um, they're still kind of fractured underneath that. Like, because when Malcolm reveals to the group that he's sort of been evangelizing, um, Cassius Clay, the other two are like, what, (laughs) you know, they're not into that. And, um, and you know, there's, there's a, there's a brief, but still funny, uh, ongoing joke with Jim Brown and a couple others is like, you mean to tell me you're not going to eat your grandma's pork chops anymore? (laughs) You know? Um, and, and, uh, there was another, uh, you know, just, just little, yeah, other little bits where, you know, you think though, maybe they're not all as unified in thought as, as you might think, but, but on the one hand, they're still friends, um, which is encouraging. And two, I think, you know, even though they disagree with the way to get there, they do all have the same goal in mind. Um, and I think it's a beautiful thought to, get the idea that sometimes this is, this is going to sound like I'm saying the end justifies the means. Obviously there have limit there are limits to this sort of thing, you know, but, um, there can be multiple streams 
that empty into the same river, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm not, you yeah. know, the, obviously that, that is an, an analogy that, that doesn't carry into every possible conversation you can have on every topic with a person. Obviously some people's, you know, you know, like my religious beliefs do not allow for universalism, for example, you know, that's not, that's, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. But, but, um, when they talk about sort of the advancement and the enrichment of, um, black people in America, uh, one of my favorite scenes was, right there in the room where Malcolm and Sam are arguing and Sam and he's Malcolm is, is just, just hitting Sam over and over again with like, you know, you're playing music for white people. You're playing this sappy little, I love you music and everything. And even when he plays it, Cassius is like, man, I love that song, you know, whatever, you know, and it's, it's so like, it's, it's so like interweaved, you know, that, that it's not what it might seem at first, but Sam hits him back with like, you think, you think you can tell me, an artist when you're not an artist, how to use my art to advance, you know, our people. And, and he goes on to tell him, he's like, I own my masters, which I'll get into that in a second. Um, he owns his master tracks. So he can sell his songs to other people and tells a little anecdote about that. Not only that, but he recruits other black musicians and as a producer for them, sold one of their songs to the Rolling Stones and he says, now the Rolling Stones are paying me like I'm not, you know, pays like, you know, white. So now, you know, little little white girls out there paying money for Rolling Stones records are putting money in my pocket mm-hmm. now and they don't even know it. And it's like so and they say they talk about the the economic advancement of black people being, you know, I think he said that's true. True freedom is, is economic freedom. And, you know, he I will say he's got a point there because. Yeah. Later on, what, 50 years later, not 50, not that many, 30, 30, 35 years later in the 90s, when Prince changed his name into a symbol, you know, a lot of that was based over him fighting with a record label to gain control over the masters of his songs so he could be the true owner of his own intellectual property and you even you know i don't know how much time our listeners spend on youtube and stuff but you know dave chappelle is in a similar argument over the over the ownership of chappelle show you know it's 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 owned by a tv studio instead of instead of him and he knows and you know he you would hear him say i know that i signed the contract but but you know you obviously you you know the whole industry took advantage of me as a as a kid and, and 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 things and and so you know he's finding his own way to try to fight back against that um which involves uh tanking his own show in terms of viewership (laughs) which i think is it's fantastic by the way but anyway (laughs) that's that's a whole nother thing which i'll be honest uh, when when that popped up like on netflix and hbo max i was so excited to go back through Chappelle's show and after that came out i was like well, I'm not watching this. <sighs> okay, I gotta stop. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, all right. right, I won't do it. I won't do it. But yeah. oh man, I was really excited to to revisit. He has. He's got like a 20 minute clip on YouTube called like Unforgiven or something mm-hmm. like that, where he just tells this straight on story for 20 minutes, which yeah. in only ways he can tell it. Yeah. But how how he ended up in the contract that he did, and mm-hmm. how he'll never get it back, and yep. and why. Um, you know, I know we're getting away from the point here, but it is kind of on topic just yeah. for the different figure. Um, yeah. How Netflix picked up his series too, and he, you know, he's doing those stand-up series for Netflix mm-hmm. right now, and he told them that it hurt him personally that they would carry a show because he's not getting paid for that show 
whenever yeah. it goes up anymore. And out of their loyalty and and care for Dave Chappelle and his feelings, they took it off Netflix yeah. just as a personal favor to him. And Man. he's like, that's why I roll with Netflix. They care about me as a person. Um, he's like, so don't watch my show, <laughs> please. You know, <laughs> anyway. But um, anyway, yeah. That was so, so he, good. Yeah, that was such a good. Yeah, so, oh, man. Yeah. So that exchange between Malcolm and, and Sam is great. And Sam, but, but Malcolm doesn't let him have the last word. He goes, um, it's funny because the, you, one thing I also appreciated about Malcolm as, as a, you know, as a portrayal, as a character is that he is, you, you know, being portrayed as the outsider in this situation, but slowly his veneer of like a Southern preacher who uses that fake preacher voice, you know, you guys know the one I'm talking about yeah. where, where there's, where there's, you know, inauthentic breathing going on at weird points and, 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 and you know, on, on a, a nondescript anger for no reason, you know, yeah. all this kind of stuff. Once the veneer of sort of the preacher mentality drifts away from him and he's just being Malcolm, you find out that he's a big fan of Sam's music that he knows who Bob Dylan, like he's, he's a fan of Bob Dylan <laughs> and he goes and he, but, but he plays uh, a Dylan tune for Sam. And he's like, why is it this white boy from Minnesota can write a better song that could be for the movement and you can't do it mm-hmm. with everything you have and, and just throws down, you know, the gauntlet for him. And, and so there's all this credit to Sam's argument about the back ends of the music industry and being strong and growing through there. But, but Malcolm still has a salient point that, you know, you have this voice to people and, and, and at the same time, um, you know, one of his defense, Sam's defenses that I really liked in their argument, too, was just that, like, it's, 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 he wasn't saying, like, I don't see color or anything like that. But but he was just saying, like, you know, music is, is you know, it's about connecting with people like, you know, and, and like you can do that without having to necessarily be so in your face about it. Um which is true. I believe that. I mean, I think if you write a good enough song, you'd be surprised the level of people and the, and the variety and diversity of people that you can affect with that. Um, and towards the end, you know, what, again, like as these layers keep unraveling, you find out that Sam, you're assume he's talking about a change is going to come because, because that would make the most sense in this narrative that he's already written that song, but he's just too afraid to play it. Um, and he finally does get the courage later on to do it. And that is the song he's most known for now. Mm -hmm. I'd say so. And at least as far as I, as far as I know. Um, so yeah, there is this tension between like, like what you said, Jared, like, what do you owe to society versus yourself as an individual and you know, what you're trying to advance. And it's a, it's a very, I don't know. It's a very interesting, interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I loved, cause I went in thinking I, I had a certain, my own viewpoint of like, you know, the idea of like, you know, I, I used to, per, I would just say personally, I used to be all about like the idea of like unity. And that I think I, a long time ago, I got caught up in the idea of unity almost before any sort of justice, you know? And now I'm like, honestly, I don't know if I care about unity. I mean, I do, obviously I totally do, but it has to justice has to come first and unity has to be an outpouring of that justice, you know? Um, so I kind of went in with this whole viewpoint, but 
I, I love how those, those, uh, you know, kind of opposed ideas you could, they, you know, in the conversations, like you said earlier, Jared, like you can see there'd be certain times where be like, Oh yeah, that may, you know, Malcolm X, you make sense. And then Sam, no, that makes, you know, you could see the, the, the negatives, the positives of all these different ideas. And you just saw how complicated and complex and tough it is to navigate. Uh, I just I think they handled those conversations so well. Well, it's like uh, a band Five Iron Frenzy said one time, uh, unity, not uniformity. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, I I like what you said there, Tim, Um, in terms of unity without justice, like that's not unity. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I think that um, and I think we would, you know, I mean, I think in our age now we can understand that better than before. but But, yeah, the whole the whole can't we all just get along mentality, mm-hmm. you know, was, is, is a nice sentiment. It yeah. is. But you know, when you, when that's being preached today, I think whether people mean it or not are really saying, can we just keep the status quo? Yeah. Yeah. Just be quiet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, is what I really mean. Yeah. And because there's true unity, I, I think would assume, you know, the same level of dignity to mm-hmm. every person involved. Yeah. And, and that's not there. Yeah. Um, it's, it, oh, yeah. and, and, you know, I'm not going to ignore and pretend like, well, it's never been like, like it's never inched toward progress mm-hmm. in the past 50 years. Yeah. It has, but ju- you know, y- y- you can't say, okay, well, yeah, we're halfway done with this project. So could you just like yeah. pat me on the back already? <laughs> exactly. like, yeah. it's, it's, it's not over, yep. you know? So the, you just yeah. got to, yeah, you can't be satisfied with that. Yeah. Um, the, there's a billboard like driving through Atlanta, uh, on 80, kind of where that, you know, where 75 and 85 are briefly the same highway for just a little while. There's a billboard uh, that's I've been up. I don't know if it's still up now, but it was up for years and it just said, just be kind. And it, I got, so, I, it just bugged the crap <laughs> out of me. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's totally possible to be kind and still be participating in systems that are flawed and unjust. Like, kindness is not enough. Obviously I, you know, kindness is significant, but, um, but if things, you know, foundations are, are, if, if there are problems with the foundation, kindness isn't going to do anything to them, you know, it's not going to touch them. So anyways, well, I'll, you know, I'll jump on that for a second, Tim. I, you know, I've grown up, um, in the, in the church and a lot of people will tell me, you know, love, you know, people say you love your neighbor and, mm-hmm. and a lot of people will counter or add on to that. Well, well, if you love them, then that means if you see them in the wrong, then you should tell them because you wouldn't let your child, if you love your child, you, and they were in the standing in the middle of traffic, you wouldn't let them just stay there, mm-hmm. which I, listen, I, I, I agree with that. But if you're yeah. going to say, just be kind, yeah. then I also think the kind <laughs> thing to do is to not allow evil to go unchecked. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh yeah. No, so, totally. <laughs> you know, if you're going to wear yep. one hat, you're going to have to wear the other. Yeah, for right. sure. Yep. Yep. <laughs> also, uh, you know, as deep into this as we are, um, I, I, I would be betraying of my own personality if I didn't stop to say how happy I was to hear Cassius Clay talk about being a fan of wrestling and modeling his personality <laughs> after Gorgeous George, which Gorgeous George, by the way, for those of you who know nothing about is think of him as a 50s or 60s prototype of Ric Flair. Um, if you don't know who Ric Flair is, then I don't know. And I can't do anything for you. But um, 
But uh, yeah, that is that is where the Ric Flair's of the world drew their personality in wrestling. And Muhammad Ali is, I mean, he he and Ric Flair would peas in a pod uh, for sure in, in terms of their public persona, the the antagonistic, uh, I am the best in the world, and there's nothing you can do about it uh, kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was you know the idea of the bankable villain like. I will be a box office draw because people will pay money to see me lose. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to lose. So I <laughs> pay, pay more next time, you know? That's awesome. Um, so great. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah, thought he so really, was when he was, share about that i was like oh yeah i was like we're gonna yeah we gotta talk about this this is great yeah that's gonna come up we won't be able to stop steven like, saying that no that's great um, also too you know we talk about um i thought about this more um about jim brown than i did the other the other four or other three um but i guess it could apply to, to them in some way but i think about him more because uh being a pro athlete you know you there are Okay, everybody has tangible consequences for living their life, I guess. But but his, you know, the, there are real physical consequences for continuing to play. And he is thinking about making a transition to Hollywood and starring in films and stuff like that. And um, and that is kind of his contribution to the four. Um, and, you know, they and it's interesting. They 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 explore the angles of that of the black action hero in Hollywood being like oh you're the first one who dies you know on on all this stuff and uh, Tim I I think we talked a little bit about that back in October with the horror movies you know like um, the documentary about you know the black people always being the first ones to die in horror movies (laughs) Uh, you know Jordan Peele with Get Out kind of turned a lot of that on his head and and things Um, but um I got to say the older I get and the more I think about this with wrestling, which I know, I know even that that is a choreographed and predetermined industry versus the competitive nature of football or, or um, mixed martial arts or some other, you know, heavily intense physical uh, competition. I find myself less and less disappointed of people who decide, nah, I'm done because it matters more to me. To, to have a life with the family I still have than to be in a wheelchair in five years or something. You know, I mean, to, if, if I have control over whether or not I'm going to be in a wheelchair, then I'm choosing, you know, to preserve my health over the entertainment of the masses, you know, yeah. um, and, and the and the box office of my owners, you know, and stuff, which that whole language yeah. <laughs> of owners and, you know, I mean, I'm not been the first one to, to, to explore that, but there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's meat on that bone as well. Um, yeah. but anyway, I was really, I wanted, I ran out of time, so I didn't get to see it. I really wanted to see Jim Brown's actual retirement press conference and wanted to know if it was that simple and to the point, because that was fantastic. Yeah. Like he's mm-hmm. on, he's on a movie set and he's like, uh, yeah, so I'm in the middle of shooting a movie. I'm totally paraphrasing this, but, <laughs> and my, uh, my team, uh, you know, I asked my team if I could be late for training camp. They said no, or else I would face a stiff financial penalty. So, uh, I retire. Uh, all right. I got to get back to this movie. Bye. Like, and that was, that was it. And, and, um, I don't know, man, that was, that was admirable, uh, to do, you know, cause you see, you know, the day and age we see now, like all these long-term consequences of, of, uh, these athletes and stuff who, um, 
have have kept themselves at the mercy of the people that they work for. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you, you even get that within this movie. I mean, not exactly because uh, he wasn't really working, you know, he wasn't playing for a team. He was, you know, doing it for himself, but you know, you look at Muhammad Ali and you know, his, his Parkinson's, which, um, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly, you know, where things have landed in terms of, of how much they, um, uh, you know, think that that contributed to it, but, um, you know, you've got that contrast there, even between, yeah, two characters within, within this film. So yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying there about, you know, having respect for people, um, you know, who choose to, to walk away. I've never really got to wonder about Muhammad Ali too, Jared, because, you know, you'd think, you know, you could, I, I, listen, I don't know what the link between like concussions or whatever and is with something like Parkinson's or if there is any at all, but mm. I'll say this. He lost five years of his prime because he was both incarcerated and stripped of his uh, boxing titles for refusing to be drafted into the Vietnam War Um, just for a pure political play. Um, You know, he could have said he had bone spurs or something and he didn't. Mm. (laughs) Um, But he uh, but he didn't. And and. And, you know, he came back and after that, you know, he really wasn't the same after mm-hmm. that because obviously he'd, he hadn't been fighting for five years, you know. Right. Um, and, fi- and five years in an athlete's life is oh like gosh. is like 20 years of, you know, regular person, you know, yeah. ability at doing different things. Yeah. So. so I guess there's two things that possibly could have happened there. And I'm just curious what you think might have been, because given that he was probably at the top of his game, he could have slipped off and even accelerated the effects that he experienced at the end of his life or he could have dominated for the next five years and pulled a Jim Brown and be like, I'm done because I have beaten the world and the world can't beat me. And he could have kept his faculties for that much longer if he hadn't been, you know, a political target for war. Right. Right. Uh, and I'm, I'm just curious how that could have gone down. I mean, you know, the history is what it is, but right. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. It makes you wonder. Um, No idea. No idea on that. But yeah, entirely possible. Mm -hmm. Well, we end up seeing kind of this um, montage at the end where they all kind of decide they don't really tell you in the moment that they decide what they're going to do each each one of them. Um, and so you're left to just sort of discover it in this ending montage is, um, you know, one of the, uh, Lance Reddick, a very underrated, um, actor, uh, was a supporting character in this one of Muhammad, uh, not Muhammad, uh, Malcolm X's, uh, bodyguards. I kept I, like he kept making me think that something was about to go down because he had been in <laughs> he had been in Lost That's he, right. had, he had been in Fringe, Fringe yeah. and yeah. like it, it just felt like there was like like his presence alone. He is the harbinger of doom. Yeah. Yes, yeah. like his presence alone just created this like foreboding sort of atmosphere. Well, yeah, they're all in this hotel and I'm thinking, okay, Martin Luther King was assassinated in a hotel. I was like, but I don't really know how Malcolm X died. Like I know he was killed. Right. But I was like, because once he starts talking about you know, up up and up until that point, uh, Malcolm had talk, been talking about how the FBI had been tailing him um, and stuff as well, and how um, how 
much that has been, had that have been affecting him. And we didn't even talk about the rooftops. Man, the rooftop scene was so good too. Like just yeah. the, the, anyway, all of it. So great. Um, but they, they, um, they come knocking on the door saying, Hey, the press knows you're all here and they want a statement from Cassius because, because again, this is the night after he won the t- title. He's the champion now. And you think they have, they all have these sort of strained relationships at this point because they've all just kind of laid their cards out and Cassius turns around and tells Malcolm to come out with him um, instead. And, and so they stand there side by side and he tells the world that he's changing his name to Muhammad Ali, uh, which obviously that didn't happen that night per se. But, you know, anyway, they, they, they kind of conflate some things together. And it's in that moment, in that absence, where Sam and Jim are still in the hotel room, that Sam tells him about a change is going to come. And yeah, he doesn't say that, but he's just like, I've had this song that I've been, I just like, I did write that song. I wrote it the day I heard Dylan's. Uh, blowing in the wind because like everything Malcolm had accused him of was true, but he didn't admit to Malcolm that he had been feeling those things for all that time. Um, and so, you know, they fast forward, they show Brown's um, retirement uh, from the film set. Um, they see um, Muhammad Ali being sort of, you know, formal, like a formal, I don't know what you call it in Islam, but, you know, basically a, a, a conversion service of sorts. Um, and I don't know, tell me if you missed this, if I'm, if I'm missing something guys, but in that scene, he's looking off to the side and there's an empty chair on stage. And is that supposed to suggest that he wanted Malcolm to be there, but he wasn't because at that point, Malcolm had been kicked out of the nation of Islam. Um, I think, or I might be remembering that wrong. I don't know. I'm not sure, but um, to say that there was still, you know, a strain in that relationship. And then it, and it goes on to Sam Cooke being on the Johnny Carson show and he sings and um, what, you know, what you guys may not know, I'm not you guys, but when I say you guys, I mean, our listeners, um, I've heard this from comedians before. So I assume it's the same with musicians that if Johnny, or maybe that was Letterman. I don't know. Maybe Johnny was the same. Beats me. I don't know. He was before my time. But if he invited you over to the couch, then that meant he really liked you. Yeah, that's Johnny. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. and he brought Sam over to the couch and they talked and he's like, hey, you want to sing another song? And he's like, sure, I'll do it. And he's like, it's a song I've never sung before. So, you know, I'll give it a shot. And he sings a change is going to come on, on Carson and, and Odom, man, Leslie Odom is, is a fantastic vocalist. Um, you know, if you haven't seen Hamilton, by all means, watch it for, for every reason, but <laughs> his, perf- his performance is, is amazing in that show. And he's quite, he's a really, really impressive vocalist. Um, Leslie Odom Jr. is, and, and he, he really nails that song and that the rest of the film is, is kind of a montage set to that song. And you see the persecution, the Malcolm X's family endures and, and, uh, ends with a quote about, I'm going to butcher the quote. I'm sorry, but it involves movements needing martyrs. Um, and, and that was a quote from Malcolm X two days before he died. Um, which is just, uh, you know, a sobering quote, uh, I, I suppose. Um, but yeah, just an incredible film. It, it's it's a little less than two hours. Um, it's on Prime um, right now, and it just came on there, so I'm sure it'll be on there for a long time. Um, by all means, check that out. I, I, I will say a couple, another moment of um, 
trivia I'd like to share is this is the first film um, ever directed by a black female to be selected by the Venice Film Festival, um, which is uh, cool. Um, there have not been, obviously, a lot of award show um, happening uh, since its release because um, we're still not quite in that season yet. But I will say a lot, and I do mean a lot, of like film critic associations are giving this film a lot of attention. So I doubt it'll be this will be the last time you hear of it. Um, but yeah, a great. Uh, a great film. Um, are there uh, other other elements or anything you got you guys want to discuss about it? We haven't had a chance to talk about or lines or moments or anything. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I will say that that Sam the um, Sam Cook singing at the end, you know, the change is going to come. That was like Leslie Odom Jr. Like that was an Oscar worthy few minutes. I mean, it was it was fantastic and just seeing the end with tears in his eyes. I mean, it was yeah. it it had that the weight that it was supposed to have it, it perfect. It was felt. I mean, it was just a really, really wonderful way to, to end the film. Agreed. No, I, I think just, uh, the thing I just keep coming back to is just all those various conversations and, um, you know, agreeing with one character's <laughs> viewpoint and then, and then switching to the other ones. And then the other one comes back with it. It was like, you know, almost like, you know, a, a tennis match of, uh, <laughs> of, um, you know, sparring here, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I mean the, the ways in which I've consumed a lot of that dialogue about, um, societal injustice and stuff like that have been through something where you're sort of a step removed in, in, in something like X-Men, you know, in something like professor X and Magneto, which, you know, I think from, from what I remember are actually, or were based on at least loosely on, uh, MLK and Malcolm X. Um, it certainly makes sense if it doesn't. <laughs> if it's right. Not. Yeah. Right. I, I believe that's true. Um, hope, hopefully that's not just my brain didn't just make that up. I'm, <laughs> I'll look, look that up later, but I, I think that's true. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is this type of thing has some is something that I've always enjoyed. But, uh, you know, again, partially because of just the genres that I enjoy, you know, sci fi superhero, all that sort of thing. I've consumed more of it through there. And then also too, I think it's just, you know, it's a little bit more comfortable too when you're dealing with fictional characters and you're not thinking about, you know, how this real person's life ended or this real person's Mm. life was, you know, derailed by this or or whatever. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's good. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of a, a, an uncomfortable way, but good because it's uncomfortable, um, Mm, to, to, to dive into some stuff like this. And I think they're, I think, uh, Malcolm X, Malcolm X even has a line in there, something to, to that effect about Sam and about, you know, wanting him, you know, like intentionally trying to, you know, take him out of the comforters or, or something. I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think Malcolm had, you know, recognized that power in Sam and wanted him to 
to do more with it. Uh, for, for what it's worth, too, if I can, we can dive in, you know, we can keep a tally of how many episodes I've made a Marvel reference. Um, <laughs> but uh, when they inevitably do bring the X-Men back into the MCU, I, I, I want so badly a black Xavier and a black Magneto. I think that would be pitch perfect and a real opportunity to to uh, take advantage of um, the the talents of some of the actors out there that haven't been utilized yet. Um, but anyway, that's another time. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, so much to say. Not so much to say. So much has been said. But um, what and, and, and I'll as an as an aside, I'll say going back to Aldous Hodge and and you making that link before we, we add on to, um, I guess one of the writers being connected to being one of the writers on Star Trek discovery. Um, Hodge actually is on Star Trek discovery. Um, Mm. and, and, and like thinking about him, like, you know, when we've talked before about like who, um, of course they're not going to recast, um, T'Challa in, in Black Panther, but in thinking about like, you know, who Mike could add to that cast or whatever, or, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about Hodge, you know, I mean, just like physically, I mean, he plays an athlete, you know, he, he yeah. plays an athlete in Jim Brown. He's done action in Star Trek discovery. And, um, you know, he just, he, 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 everything about him just sort of has this look of how he could, fit into um you know that that film franchise pretty well i think yeah yeah no i think i think any any of those guys i think would be a eli gory i mean any of them could i I, you know what do you guys think if you if you had to pick like a best actor nominee out of these four who would you go with for me, I it might almost be. I think it would be, and I've and I've already forgotten the actor's name who played him, but the 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 actor who plays um, Cassius Clay, um, Eli, Eli Gorey. Yeah, um, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, he he's got. It's it's hard to judge because the characters are are so different, and he gets yeah. fun fun material to work with. Um, um, you know, the, the, the Malcolm X portray- portrayal I thought was, was really good. Um, there were certain moments and this is, I mean, like th- this is like nitpicking because I'm trying to like split hairs between whose you know, performance I liked better, you know, but there were, there were certain moments where, you know, it, it felt like when, when he, when, when the dialogue when his dialogue was being interrupted or he was, he was sort of stopping and taking these moments of pause. Like, you know, I, I, it felt like a little bit forced or something for, for me, like most of the time he felt very like in, in that character and in that moment, those felt. So again, I'm just like uh, trying to parse out in my mind, like who I would pick. I mean, in some ways I, you know, I liked, um, um, Hodges, Jim Brown, uh, maybe, maybe because I just, I know that, um, real life person a little, a little bit better from, from following football and stuff like that. Um, but I, I, I liked, yeah, I liked the, the Cassius Clay performance really well, but I mean, you know, I mean, they all did a good job and it's hard when they're, when they're all so different to really kind of rank them, I think for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's hard. I was leaning probably towards either Cassius, you know, Eli, Gory, or Leslie Adam Jr. But so since you said Cassius, which I thought he was a fan, you know, fantastic, had that, I mean, ha- man, I mean, he, he, I mean, it was, it was pitch perfect. But since you said him, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll go with Leslie Adam Jr. I think there's something about him. I feel like he was definitely, there was a lot. I mean, I guess there for many, for him and Jim Brown, you know, Jim Brown's character, or Jim Brown, um, there was a lot more of a, you could tell they were, there was more of an intern, a struggle um, internally, and you could you could tell that they were dealing with a lot. And so I, yeah, I think Lizzie Jr. I mean, man, but I mean, it's yeah, it's like you said, it's it's hard to all all four were were really really well cast. Yeah, I mean, it would be a tough call because yeah. you know they are an ensemble. It's um, they they all brought their own thing to it. My my guess is that if there is a nominee, um that it'll probably be Kingsley Benadir, the uh, Malcolm X portrayal. But if I was picking it, I would, I would go with Leslie Odom Jr. too. Um, I think, um, you know, he was the one, he was the actor I knew the most going into this. Yeah, um, but Sam Cooke was probably the figure that I knew about the least mm. um, going into this. And I hearing hearing a lot of those monologues and stuff that he did um, really turned me on that. And, and um, yeah, I was, I was impressed with the, with all the performances yet. It was really enlightening. And I mean, obviously I know this was a fictitious event, but, but um, I don't know, just seeing them interact as friends and literally, literally behind a closed door where none of them had to have their, this is a, gross thing to say but their their white man face on you know mm-hmm. where they all just kind of had which malcolm still well, mm-hmm. malcolm wouldn't have been a, a white man face but but his his public persona like you know he mm-hmm. i i'd say malcolm and 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 cassius didn't care about appease, appeasing the white public so much as jim and sam probably did um at least in the cautions they took with the way they related to others in public but but um um oh there is a uh that whole monologue uh leslie odom gives it talking about owning his master tracks and 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 um producing and and getting royalty checks and stuff um he has a great line which i can't quote verbatim because language but um he he says you know everybody's always talking about a piece of the pie i want the recipe Mm, Um, and that is uh right now this as soon as i said that out loud it reminded me of the GameStop thing from this week (laughs) um which honestly is a bunch of people figuring out the recipe you know (laughs) um at least in terms of business but um but yeah, you know, in terms of advancement, you know, and he, he is the one and maybe it's because he's a musician, but I kind of get that sort of Jay-Z vibe from him of like, I'm going to, and, and, and I don't mean any possible negative connotations from this, but like, I'm going to earn people's respect by being on their economic level, 
like, you know, talks about moving out to L.A. and and uh, he's and, and where he says all oh, these heartbreaking things. Like, I don't need a green book out there, you know, he's like to, to know where the safe places are. And he's like, you know, I was like, he's basically saying once you're once you have a certain amount of money, that's all people care about, you know, is how rich you are, not not how white or black you are. And um, and obviously that was just his out outcry of how he wanted to be free from from the pain that he was feeling you know and his solution to that but um yeah great performance in that the, the recipe line is is solid um and, and great stuff so um yeah so anyways guys uh, i hope you have enjoyed the conversation on one night in miami it is it is very uh, very accessible right now it's on on prime um so go check that out uh, it's definitely worth your time um and let's see uh next week we are planning on having a double feature of sorts we'll be touching on two netflix films uh, ma rainey's black bottom um which if you if you were listening to our chadwick boseman episode uh mentioned was his his final film uh which has since been released on netflix now and also uh former uh Best Picture Academy Award winner Moonlight as well. So um, join us next time for that. Uh, any final final words, fellas? I think I think I'm good. Okay, getting yeah. two no's here yeah. from the crowd. All right. <laughs> well, um, thank you for joining us this week, guys. We'll see you next time. And until then, keep working on your night cheese. A long time coming, but I know. I mean, one thing we can say for the internet is that they are understanding and that they will give you the benefit of the doubt. True. So no one's going to grace. No one's going to jump to any conclusions. That's a good point. (laughs) 